When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 21, Legally Insufficient. In this week's episode, we broke down the first point of error in Sandy Melgar's appellate brief that was filed on December 6th. This was the first in a three-part series where we're going to break down the nearly 400-page document filed by the Seacrest to the district court. There were two main focuses of this episode. One was, of course, the appeal document where we honed in on that point of error, which had to do with basically Max Seacrest claiming that the jury got it wrong. And he goes through a lot of case law and point by point through the trial to explain that the evidence presented by the prosecution through the trial did not meet the legal standard of sufficiency to find Sandra Melgar guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And at the end of the episode, I announced the new GoFundMe campaign where we're raising money to create a reward fund for anyone who has information about who actually killed Jim Melgar. And so we're going to go ahead and get started and get to both those things and your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more. All in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. Okay, we're going to start things off with a voicemail from listener Lisa. Hi, Bob. It's Lisa calling. How are you? Hey, just listen to um, today's episode, Sunday, today's January 5th or 6th or something. Anyway, um, question. I think the GoFundMe idea is a great one. Um, I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit here based on listening, you know, to your shows for several years. How do you see this effort to raise funds for a tip different from Crime Stoppers? Um, if I recall from several of your other cases, 
I believe that you were kind of suspect or not entirely on board with some of the tips that came in through Crime Stoppers and even with some of the tips that eventually were paid out as helpful um, to the prosecution. So I'm curious um, as to how you see this effort, the GoFundMe effort, as different from the Crime Stoppers effort. Um, as a follow-up, which I'm sure you'll probably get into, is how does this all work? Um, I'm guessing that you and Mike are going to investigate the tips that come in with the reward money, but then are they turned over to, I guess, to Sandy's lawyers to then, um, well, maybe they're just turned over to them to investigate and you guys don't do much investigating on that. Just curious as to how all that would work going down the road as well. Anyway, thanks for all that you're uh, doing and Happy New Year. Okay, those are a couple of great questions, Lisa. I'll first handle your first uh, question or concern, and that is that uh, you're right, Lisa. In in previous seasons, I have stated many times that Crime Stoppers tips often lead to false convictions and and wrongful convictions, and, and they have in several of our cases. Adding a reward factor does maybe motivate someone to come forward with the truth, but at the same time, it may motivate someone to come forward with something that's not the truth just because they want the money. And I've been very critical of that. I think, and as a matter of fact, it's one of our checkpoints when we're screening cases. You know, we want to know, was there a jailhouse snitch? Was there a reward paid out? Anything like that? Because oftentimes those are indicators that uh, we have a false conviction here because someone probably came forward because they were trying to collect the money. And I still stand by that. And that's, that, that is definitely a problem. And the difference is pre-conviction and post-conviction procedures are two very different animals. And I, I talked a little bit about this on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook for anybody that saw that. Uh, but there's a small percentage of the audience that are actually in that group. So I'll kind of address it to everyone here. I have never asked any of you to contribute to a reward fund. And I've been critical of reward funds. Uh, many times for all those reasons that I just stated. And here's the difference between pre-conviction and post-conviction. Pre-conviction, the evidence is still malleable, so to speak. So essentially what's happening is the police are investigating, the, the prosecutor's building a case, and they're kind of shaping the narrative around the evidence. And so until they go to trial, that narrative doesn't have to be clear yet. So say they're working on a theory of the case based on the evidence that Mike killed me in this manner here, here, here. Well, then someone comes forward with a tip and it says something otherwise, rather than disregarding it as the false tip, what they can do is just shift the narrative. Like, okay, well, so still Mike killed Bob, but he didn't do it this way. He did it this way because that's what this person says. And then they use that information and get it into trial in front of the jury as evidence of guilt. And they still have the opportunity to shift things around like that until the trial. Once you get to trial and the conviction is present, the record is what the record is. And so any post-conviction work, it's a very different animal to get new evidence in. And, and to begin with, let's look at the stats for a minute. Over 95% of people who are charged with a crime, over 95% are ultimately convicted. And a huge percentage of that in the 90s are convicted because they pled guilty. That, that's what the, the majority of our legal system involves. Uh, plea deals. It happens all the time. Very few cases actually go to trial. On the flip side of that, let's look at post-conviction cases. Less than 1% of appeals that are filed, and so that's not every case, that's just the people who filed appeals and post-conviction, like, like habeas corpus briefs claiming actual innocence, 
less than 1% of those convictions are overturned. So there's there's a massive unbalancing of the scales there from pre-conviction to post-conviction. And the reason is, in order for you to bring any any evidence into post-conviction work, it has to be, quote, new and compelling evidence. So it has to be new and compelling. So you, you can't relitigate things that were already in the trial. You have to say, well, here's some piece of evidence that wasn't available to us or we didn't know it existed at the time of trial. Now we've discovered it. And so now we want the court to look at that. And so unlike at the trial where both sides can present whatever evidence they have, and, and there are evidentiary rules and the court can rule something inadmissible, but certainly a statement from uh, a witness of some kind can end up being admitted into trial. Someone can testify that I was told by this person that this happened. And there's hearsay rules that they got to dance around different things. But the point is, it's much easier to get that information into a trial. And post-conviction work, that's not the case. The court can decide what they're going to hear and what they don't want to hear and what they'll even allow to be argued. And if it doesn't meet the standard of new and compelling, it just gets, no, it just gets thrown away and it it won't make it into the argument. A good example of that is, and someone had brought this up, uh, I think Tank brought this up, one of the guys on our, our fan page, that, you know, remember what happened in the in the West Memphis 3 case. So, you know, years after the fact, I mean, 14, 15 years after the fact, Jamie Clark Ballard comes forward and says, I saw Terry Hobbs yelling at, at the three boys outside my house at 6 p.m. on the night that they were killed. And that's a piece of evidence that I, on the show here, have said that after investigating it thoroughly, and some of the stuff we have, and some of the news things we've done, not even on the sh- on the show yet, uh, they're going to be coming when we come back to the case. And to answer that question, yes, we're going back to the West Memphis Three, I promise. I don't believe that statement is accurate at all. I don't know if it was in- an intentional lie or a-, a false memory or what the issue is, but I do not believe at all that what Jamie Clark Ballard came forward with is accurate or credible evidence. And then we're like, well, but look what happened with that. Well, the thing is, we all know about that because it made for good TV. It was on- it was in the movie West of Memphis, and then, you know, it was very compelling, and, and, and it caused a lot of people to think Terry Hobbs is guilty. But the reality is that statement probably never would have made it into post-conviction proceedings. You know, the, the, the West Memphis Three ended up taking an Alfred plea before they went through all the evidentiary hearings. So we don't necessarily know, but I don't think that ever would have made it in because it's not only not corroborated by any evidence, it's actually contradictory to the evidence. You know, at the same time that... Jamie Ballard is saying that she saw the three boys. There's over a a dozen other witnesses that saw them in the completely other end of the neighborhood at the same time. She said all three were on bikes, and one of them didn't have a bike that day. She says she talked to Ryan at school the next day, uh, Chris's brother, and Ryan wasn't at school the next day. So again, it made for good TV, but it never would have made it into court. So that's the difference in post-conviction work in general, before I even get into what we're going to do. It has to be new compelling, and it has to be credible and corroborated for it to have any impact whatsoever. And so for us, we add another kind of layer of security there, and, and I guess it all depends on if you trust me or you don't. For those of you that do, it's it's actually us investigating, me, Mike, and the rest. We have teams of experts that are constantly helping us out with things. Some of them, you know, they come on the show. Uh, sometimes they don't. They're just working with us kind of behind the scenes. They have the defense attorneys and, and the private investigators that they use. So we're kind of in charge of investigating any of these tips as they come in. So I am I will tell you I am certainly not going to do anything to you know destroy somebody's reputation by putting out information from a tip if it's not credible and corroborated 
by some kind of evidence. And so uh, Lisa asked, so how would this work? So we're going to offer this reward. We're hoping, again, to have a pretty sizable reward. I would love, after we pay for advertising and things for the reward, that we still have a good $20,000 left to offer. Uh, and, and someone comes forward, I'm sure we'll get tips that are false, and that's going to happen. And we're going to have to investigate all of them and determine if they're credible or not. But as we get tips that we think are credible, we will investigate them. So as an example, and when I say we, uh, someone asked that on the fan page too. I don't mean, unfortunately, all of us, we, as far as like you guys listening, because of the fact that, so say somebody comes forward with a tip and says, Mike Bussing told me that he was there the night that happened. Well, I'm I'm not going to come on the show and say, we got this tip that Mike, a guy named Mike Bussing said that he was there that night because we, we haven't vetted that. We haven't corroborated. We haven't investigated it. And now we're going to ruin Mike Bussing's life because now he's part of this, even though we have no proof that he is. So I just can't do that. You know, we'll keep you apprised of what's happening, but we're not going to be putting people's names out there in, in any way, shape or form until, you know, we, we get to a point where we believe that we have, not till we believe, but until we do have corroborating evidence and we determine the tip is actually credible. Uh, that's when we'll, you'll hear most of the details about it. But so say that's the case. So someone tells us, I talked to Mike Bussing in uh, two years ago, and he told me that he was there this night, and his friend, whoever, uh, killed that guy. But that, that sounds like that would definitely be something that would get our attention as a solid tip, if it's true. And so what we would do then is, you know, this, this person that comes forward and gives us this tip and says that, you know, it's, it's, it's Mike is the one that told them that he was there. So then we would want to, number one, investigate the person that brought it to us and, and see if there's any issues with them. But then also then investigate Mike and looking into Mike's background, looking into Mike's criminal record. We would probably try to get some of Mike's DNA. Um, and then maybe they told him that Mike said he was there and he saw person X commit the actual crime. Well, we would try to then investigate person X as well. Because remember, we have lots of unknown DNA from this crime scene. The issue with it is, and the reason we're doing this reward is because right now the suspect pool is, you know, millions of people. We have no idea who to compare. We have to have someone to compare the DNA to, and that's what this reward could do for us. So then, so we, we investigate person X and we do, and, and a lot of you guys don't realize this, but there's a lot of stuff we do behind the scenes you're not aware of. We're, you know, a lot of times when we have weird schedules or, you know, we say we're out traveling somewhere, sometimes it's for that reason, you know, we're. We're doing a stakeout. We're trying to collect DNA from someone's trash can or whatever it is we're doing. We do a lot of that type of thing to, to help build the evidence that, you know, that we're not necessarily talking about on the podcast. So say we go to person X and we, we manage to get a sample of their DNA and we turn that over to the defense investigators and you know, we, we have the DNA analyzed and we have the profiles from the DNA from the crime scene and we find there it is. That's a match. This, that DNA in the scene was person X's DNA. Now that tip becomes credible and corroborated. So I guess what I'm saying is the tip is not the end game. The tip is is just opening a door for us. It's the beginning to narrow down a suspect pool to give us an idea of who to look for. And, you know, in that case, maybe we find we find Mike and we find person X and we get their DNA and we check it and it doesn't match anything. It may be still some it's still somebody that we're going to keep investigating and put on our, our radar. And at some point, maybe the the defense investigator, the actual PI that's working on the case, might want to take them and interview them. Or even now, it sounds like Kathleen Zellner is working with the prosecutors. You know, they may want to go and in, in interrogate this person or, or interview this person and see if there's anything there. 
but it, it wouldn't be corroborated at that point until we until we get there. But it's it's giving us a starting point if a person comes forward and tells us they think they know who did it. Now, then another question there is, well, why? Because somebody said, well, I don't think somebody's going to go to confess to murder for $20,000. That's stupid. And yes, that is stupid, but that's not what we think is going to happen. I believe there were multiple people in this house. Personally, I believe there were four people in the house. I think there were at least three people in the house. One person killed Jim. I don't believe that anyone planned on killing Jim. So the person that did it, I don't think that was their intention to begin with. But I think there's two or three other people in that house that just wanted to go in and steal a couple hundred bucks worth of stuff, and now they're wrapped up in a murder. Now, those people, it may be even tricky for them to come forward, because if they come forward, they could be charged with felony murder just for being there. But the idea that that multiple people like that can keep a secret for that long, for the, these six years, and never have told anyone is pretty unlikely. You know, that's 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 tough, especially if you're not the one that actually did it. And then those 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 rumors start to spread from this person telling their friend, oh my God, I was with so-and-so, it, you know, we were robbing this house and and he fucking killed this guy. You know, so th- so they hear that and then they're telling their buddy and pretty soon there's a, there's a pretty fair amount of people that at least have some knowledge of what happened that could point us back in the right direction. And that is the purpose of the reward fund is for us to try to get to that person. Every single tip will be thoroughly investigated. Of course, we will be as they come in, we will be, you know, kind of screening them and doing kind of a, a preliminary investigation. Anything that seems credible will be looping in the defense attorneys and the defense investigators. And then if that information becomes corroborated, that's when they will t- then take that to the prosecutor's office and see what we can actually do about it. And that's what actually gets it into the court system to try to not only overturn Sandy's conviction, but actually file charges against the person that actually did it. And one thing that comes to mind for me is if somebody had information and were afraid to come forward, but they would divulge it if they were granted immunity from the prosecution. How does that work? You mean like maybe like someone that was actually in the house? Yeah, somebody who was involved and is definitely scared to tell their story. Yeah, so I mean, I can't, I won't, and I I can't speak for the prosecution. But one, hopefully, advantage that may be a little bit more of an enticement there is the fact that we are not law enforcement. Tips can come in anonymously, and we can maybe present that to through the defense attorneys, the prosecutors. So, say someone comes forward and you know keeps anonymous, they call from a burner phone and say, "Listen, I was there that night. I know what happened, but I, I'm not going down for this." You know, and we have a way to contact them or whatever. I know what I would do if that if that happened. Of course, running it by Liz, but we've talked about this. If something like that happens, and and she's okay with us doing this, is to take the prosecutor and say, or excuse, take it to the defense attorneys who could then take it to the prosecutor and then say, hey, we have a person that's saying they were there that night but did not commit the murder that wants to come forward. Can we work out a deal for them? And then that would be up to the prosecutors. We've seen it before. We've seen Smith County do it in Kerry Max Cook's case with uh, James Mayfield. They, in order to get to the truth, they were willing to sign an immunity agreement and saying that nothing you say here will, will lead to your prosecution and so, yeah, that, that, that's a possibility if that, you know, there, there's all kinds of different scenarios that can come up. And again, I'm not in any way, shape or form speaking for the prosecutor's office. They could say, nope, they have nothing to do with that. But I, I truly believe based on what's going on now with uh, Kathleen Zellner there, you know, she was actually in, she's in Houston today, actually, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. And it, it seems like the prosecutor's office is much more interested now than they ever have been in getting to the truth. That's not to say that they're saying that they got it wrong. But they're open to hearing and and open to 
letting us test some evidence and things to to find out for sure if they got it right or wrong and get to the truth. So I think that if that would if that scenario came up, that I would hope that they would be willing to do something like that to offer immunity. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our first question comes from Christine. Christine says, I was happy to hear that there's a GoFundMe account now set up to be able to offer a reward for Jim's killer. But I had been expecting to hear about a fundraiser to raise funds to pay for Sandy's attorney fees first. It got me thinking about who is paying the attorneys who are working on her appeal. Are they going to do it pro bono? No, they're not doing it pro bono. Um, and I brought this up to Liz a while back, and I said we can probably, you can't do it through GoFundMe, but other other uh, fundraising sites you can use to raise money for legal defense. And Liz said that you know she appreciated it, but she didn't want to do that because she just felt, felt like they can afford it. And when I say that, I don't mean like like Liz and her husband are rich or anything, but Sandy and Jim own these rental properties, and so they've that that's how they have paid for the attorneys. They've they've sold off rental properties in order to fund the the legal bills. Nobody's doing it pro bono, uh, but Liz had just told me that she she didn't feel comfortable asking people to pay for it when they have these properties there that they can sell to do it. So that's why we've never asked for money for for legal expenses. And along that note, I was going to mention this at the end of the episode, but I guess it's a good time to bring it up now while we're still talking about the GoFundMe. Uh, Liz was supposed to be on the phone with us today, but uh, I don't know. We weren't able to get through to her. Uh, but she did want me to tell everyone that she and her husband have decided that they want to match funds in the GoFundMe. And they said they're willing to match funds for the reward fund for the first $15,000 that are donated into the GoFundMe account. So understand that means that if we collectively raise fifteen thousand, Liz and her husband are going to donate another fifteen thousand, and we'll be up to thirty thousand dollars. And I also I don't think I said in the episode, but as I do with all of our funds like this that we raise, I always match the first thousand, which we far exceeded. We're already well over five thousand dollars now, so uh, I'm going to be matching that thousand too. So what that means for the first sixteen thousand we raise, we're doubling that, and we'll be up to thirty-two thousand. So. Uh, I, I would encourage all of you, and, and I hopefully in this segment here, I've answered some of the questions or, or covered some of the concerns some of you might have had, that all of you will go to GoFundMe.com slash Jim Melgar and donate. It, it doesn't take a lot of money with a lot of people. If everybody just goes and does it, we can get there. And I truly, truly believe that if we can get the word out in a sizable enough reward that someone is going to come forward. This next one's from Ruth. What happens to the reward fund long-term if no one ever claims it? Is there a plan on how it will be used? There is, and it's explained if you go to the GoFundMe page, gofundme.com slash Jim Melgar, in the description, 
it explains all that. And but so basically, it's this: the money that goes in at some point, I think it's after ninety days. It'll probably be before that because we want to get moving on this. Uh, we have to withdraw the funds from GoFundMe. You can keep it active, and they'll continue to transfer them. But we have to create a bank account to put that into. Um, that's not created yet because I'm working with a, a local attorney here to figure out how to do it, whether we do a trust or how we're going to do it. But there are going to be three account managers with this reward fund in order to have some accountability. So one will be myself, one will be Liz, and then we have a neutral third party who shall remain nameless right now, who is the third person whose name will be on that account that will oversee the money. So once the money goes into that account, and that's where, by the way, so my, my thousand and Liz, the money Liz is going to put in, because we have direct access to the account, we're, we're going to be depositing directly into that because, you know, of course, GoFundMe or any of these fundraising sites take a fee. Um, it's a safe way for all of you to donate. I know it sucks that, that they take a fee out of it. But for us, since we have direct access, we can deposit money directly into the account. So we're going to have the, the three account managers that will be handling the account. We'll be making decisions, uh, you know, voting basically and, and, and agreeing on anything that the money is going to be spent on. So if we decide we want to put up a billboard or pay for a mailing campaign or whatever we're going to do, that'll be all decided amongst the three of us. And we will keep a full detailed accounting of that that will be available to anyone upon request. If somebody feels like something fishy is going on, we can provide all the receipts and everything from GoFundMe and everything else to show everyone that everything is on the up and up. We want to be completely transparent. Uh, that's why one of the reasons we took a little bit to kind of decide to do this is because we were trying to figure out some of these logistics because I don't like the idea of hanging on to people's money like that. Um, but I think that it's necessary. So we're going to go ahead and take the step. We are taking the steps to actually do that. And then, of course, we'll decide who the reward gets paid out to if we do get a credible tip. Now, it's written into the GoFundMe. And again, to explain it here, if the tip is not used. So, you know, a couple of things could happen. So let's say that uh, we just never get a credible tip. Or, you know, before we ever get a credible tip, or I guess we, we never get one. Or say that um, they do new DNA testing, they get a hit in CODIS and arrest somebody for the crime. And, you know, they determine who actually did it. And it didn't involve any tips to us. So now we still have this money sitting there. What do we do with it? Or, you know, maybe there's 0% chance of this happening, in my opinion. But somehow some proof comes out that it was Sandy that did it. And we still have this reward money sitting there. There's a couple scenarios where we wouldn't be spending it. And so what we're doing with it then is it will roll into that that trust fund will be set up or however whatever kind of account we set up will continue to be like a truth and justice reward fund. So we will keep those funds there. They won't be spent. There, there's It's going to be set up so that not myself, not NBI Studios, not Liz, not the third party, no one will profit from this money. So if it's sitting in the account, it will stay there and it will become a truth and justice reward fund that we can use for future cases, past cases. We could use it for, you know, or if, you know, there's a, there's another case out there that maybe isn't one we're covering that we think we can help with, you know, that those will be things that we will collectively vote on to use it for. But the money that we're taking in as a reward fund will continue and always be used as exactly that a reward fund. Next, Natasha says just a question regarding the reward. How likely is it that someone would come forward with another suspect when they know someone else is already serving time for it? Would the police even look at evidence of someone else committing the crime, knowing that Sandy is serving the time? It's hard to say. I, I think so. I think that, you know, there's this this snitches get stitches kind of mentality that people have or, or believe people have uh, when it comes to, you know, kind of the criminal element of wherever. 
you know, nobody's going to talk, nobody's going to snitch on anybody else, nobody's going to be a rat. But the reality of it is we've seen it time and time and time again. Think about how many jailhouse snitches we've had in just cases we've worked. The reality is most of the time people are looking out for number one. And if they have information that can get them, say, $20,000, they're probably going to take it. Now, I think it's probably less likely that someone was someone who was there and was involved in the crime, I think it's less likely for them to come forward unless you have someone who genuinely, it's just been eating at their conscious. I mean, not only did a man lose his life, but they know that somebody else went to prison and they know who actually did it. And so, and they know that this poor woman is sitting in prison for their crime, but I, they still, they're risking a felony murder charge. So, you know, if they believe they could, or were able to work out somehow where they could get some kind of immunity. But as far as anybody else, I don't think that the fact that someone else is in prison for it is going to make a difference for someone coming forward. If someone genuinely knows who did it, if if someone has talked and that rumor has has made its way around a neighborhood or wherever they're at, and they believe they know who did it, and 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 now that now you're talking to somebody that's you know a person or two removed from the actual individual that committed the murder, and there's you know a large sum of money sitting there, I th- I think that they'll likely go ahead and come forward with it because there's, you know, we, we've seen people, you know, Jesse Eldridge's own brother fabricated a story to put him in prison. You know, so someone who's a couple people removed and knows who did, I think they'll come forward. As far as the police, again, that's where we go back to kind of that safety net where we're worried about, you know, false information coming out and causing a wrongful conviction in order for police to even listen to it or the prosecution to even consider it. It has to be credible and corroborated. And that would mean, so we would go to the police in kind of the example I gave earlier that we have this tip, here's this person, they wrote out an affidavit that said that this person told them that this person did it. We collected this person's DNA, we've compared it to the scene, it's a match. And we present that package to them. That's pretty hard to ignore. And even if they chose to ignore it, it can be filed as an actual innocence uh, writ to the appellate court at that point. Jenny says, with Zellner being retained, will the Seacrest still be representing Sandy? Yeah, as far as I know, um, so Zellner typically does, to the best of my knowledge, she does habeas work, which is after, you know, the phases after a conviction are the direct appeals, and then after that, and that is where you're only looking at constitutional issues at the trial. That's why in, in this brief that was just written, there's three points of error, and they're all citing constitutional violations, basically saying Sandy didn't get a fair trial. Kathleen Zellner typically does habeas work, which is the next phase after that, where you can then bring in new evidence. You can't bring in new evidence into a direct appeal. It's, it's just not allowed. And so timing-wise, if we were if we were to break this case right now while Sandy's awaiting her direct appeal, there's still like hoops you'd have to jump through. You'd have to I believe you can you can file a motion to waive your right to a direct appeal to get past that hurdle so you can get into habeas so you can then present the new evidence. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This one's from Mitch. The Facebook group seems to be really excited about the unknown male DNA found around the crime scene and especially on the Xbox game case and book. How seriously should we really take this, especially when things like Xbox games can be purchased from stores pre-owned and an expert as knowledgeable as Werner Spitz showed in the JonBenet reinvestigation that trace DNA on things like clothing and fabrics can even be left over from the manufacturing process. It feels to me like something way too minute to be focusing on so early in the investigation when there are possibly way bigger clues worthy of attention. Well, the thing is we're giving everything attention. Just the same as they could be nothing, they could also be something, So they, but they can't be ignored. But there's unknown male DNA throughout the house. There's some on some closet doorknobs, uh, the, the game case, the backpack. There's, there's several places that we have unknown female DNA in several places. So I don't know, as far as focusing in on them, we can't do anything with them unless we have somebody to compare the DNA to, which is, again, why we're doing the reward fund, is try to find somebody to compare that to. So yeah, so you, you have this unknown male profile on the game case. It could be from one of the intruders, or it could be from a previous owner. We don't know. But so if we have a suspect that we can collect their DNA and compare it and it matches, now it becomes very important. Rebecca says, I know we heard from people in Jim and Sandy's life who are convinced she's not guilty. Is there anyone in her family or friend group who thinks she is? No, there's not. And more importantly, there's no one in Jim's family that I'm aware of that believes she's guilty. I mean, everybody that that knew them as a couple and and knew Sandy and knew Jim knows that there's just no way that this could have happened. It's, that, that Sandy, she couldn't do this to anyone, much less Jim, is what I've gotten from every single person that knows them. And, and that's a fact, as, as Max said in the appellate brief in this week's episode, a fact that is undisputed in the trial record. The Understand that and think about it for a second. The prosecution wasn't able to find a single witness that could speak to Sandy being anything other than caring, loving, patient, and that their relationship was a great, caring, and loving relationship. And they couldn't find a single person to even give the jury a hinkling of a hint that maybe there was a problem in the marriage. Brenda says, I'm wondering if the bruising on Sandy's arm could be from the person who tied her up. She states it's from Jim catching her when she fell, but couldn't it be from the person who tied her arms behind her? Yeah, and to be clear, she didn't state that it was from Jim catching her when she fell. She, When they were asking her if Jim had grabbed her or anything when she was in her police interrogation and they were talking about the wraparound bruise, she said that, well, there was a, she did slip getting out of the tub and Jim grabbed her arm, but she, she, she didn't think that it was hard enough to cause a bruise like that. But then, and then as they discussed it further, she said, no, now that as she's thinking about it, she said, no, he grabbed, if I'm remembering correctly, she said that, no, come to think, he grabbed my right arm. And the bruises on the left arm. So not only did she not emphatically say that that bruise is from Jim grabbing her, she went as far as to say that Jim grabbed her on the other arm. So that wouldn't be from Jim, I think. So, you know, they talk about a wraparound bruise and it could be from a struggle, but it's on the back of her arm and on her bicep. To me, it's much more likely that was someone behind her grabbing her arm and manipulating her to the floor and uh, manipulating her arm behind her back, is my opinion. Pamela says, Bob, you stated that Barnett did not prove Sandy knew about the life insurance policies, but I'm curious if she did know. I guess I'm just wondering if, legally, it could be considered a reasonable assumption made by the jury. 
I hope this makes sense. I left my legal pants at the dry cleaners. <laughs> uh, no, it can't be a reasonable assumption by the jury. And that's ba- that's that exact case law was cited by Mac in the appellate brief. When it comes to motive, you cannot assume those things. That has to be proven through the evidence. That's why that doesn't meet the standard for motive based on the case laws because there was never any evidence presented at trial that Sandy had any idea that there was a policy, uh, how much it was, and that she was the beneficiary. Now, practically speaking, from what I understand from talking to Liz, Sandy was aware that there was life insurance, but she didn't know how much it was, and she didn't know. I mean, she just, I guess she would assume that she was the beneficiary, but it was Liz that was kind of helping her, you know, weeks later after the murder, get in touch with the with the Harris County ISD and through and find the insurance companies to figure out what the insurance was. And there's there's some emails that are out there that we have that where where they're trying to figure out how much life insurance is there and you know how was it paid out and because they they didn't know how it worked. So it seems to me that Sandy did know there was life insurance, didn't know how much and didn't know exactly what the procedure would have been or how she'd be paid off. I think she assumed that she would be the one that would collect it because she was spouse. All right. And this is from John. John says, I agree with Bob that jury deliberation is deeply flawed with jurors arguing the case after all arguments should be done. It makes me wonder if they shouldn't just do a written vote at the end of the trial there in the courtroom. What are your thoughts on this, Bob? Yeah. I, I, so a couple things. Number one, I believe, and I've said this many times and, and it really came out in this week's episode, that I believe that our jury system is extremely flawed and is the result of a lot of wrongful, well, because well, Jesse Eldridge didn't have a jury, he had a judge, but is the result of wrongful convictions. But with that being said, I, I can't say that I have a solution because, so I, let me give you an example. So I was in a jury trial. It was, I don't know, it's been five or six years ago. And it was a week-long trial. It was a felony aggravated robbery or armed robbery case. And when we went into deliberations, it was pretty obvious. I mean, the the defendant all but admitted guilt. And basically, the defense was making an argument that, you know, maybe he was like coerced into it. It was almost like they were just trying to, it was, there wasn't even any law really behind what their argument was. I think they were just trying to get the the jurors to not convict because they believe he was pushed into this, doing this armed robbery. In any case, the evidence was overwhelmingly clear that this guy was was guilty based on the law. When we went into deliberations and we did our initial vote, it was like 10 to 2, guilty to not guilty. And through our deliberation process, it wasn't long, it was maybe an hour, the other two people eventually voted guilty. But their purpose, their reason for voting not guilty, or they didn't vote not guilty, but they said they were, you know, they just undecided, they weren't comfortable voting guilty. And when they explained why it was, so in Michigan, there is, uh, it's called, it's an aiding and abetting law, uh, or a law of parties, I think it's called in, in other states. But basically it says if you're participating in an act, then you're guilty of everything that happened within the act, which is why in this case, we're talking about if someone came forward that was there robbing the house, even though they didn't kill Jim, they could still be charged with felony murder because there was still a murder that occurred during the act of a felony. So in this case, it was an armed robbery, but the person that was on trial didn't have a gun or wasn't proven that he had a gun, but it was proven that he was there. He tied the people up. Uh, It was at a jewelry store that, that he threatened them. He tied them up and took the money. And so the law said, and when you get your jury instructions and the, the judge explains the law, 
uh, that if he was there and present and participating, then he is guilty of there was a weapons charge and the armed robbery. And so these two other jurors just said, I just am not comfortable convicting him of armed robbery if he didn't have a gun. So they weren't comfortable with it. And so the deliberation process was us explaining, I understand you're not comfortable with it, but there's, there's, there's two very clear points here. And it is, do you believe that an armed robbery occurred? Yes. Do you believe this person was participating in that armed robbery? Yes. Then by the law that they gave us, he's guilty of armed robbery. And so they just, you know, and, and they hum hummed a little bit. They just, and, and they just kept saying their only reason they weren't comfortable voting guilty was because they just didn't think it was fair mm-hmm. that he would be convicted of it. But, but the problem is, is a juror, you don't get to decide what, you don't get to decide what the law is. You just right. have to vote based on the law. Then we did, we ended up convicting the person. In Michigan, we don't, the jury doesn't decide on uh, sentences. The judge does that. Uh, so I don't even know what the guy ended up getting sentenced to. But in, in that case, it, it, just took a little bit of explaining, but I think that also could have been done by a judge. I don't know. It's I get, I don't have the solution to it because you know you could say that the the judge could explain this is how the law works, and if and if like John had said here, they just took a vote right there in the courtroom. That would have been a hung jury, and I think a lot of trials would be a hung jury. You know, our jury was pretty good. I wasn't the foreman, uh, but the person that was the foreman was very easygoing. Just let people talk and didn't try to push any beliefs but that's what we did we basically just kept showing this person this is the law do you believe that thing a occurred do you believe thing b occurred if so that equals guilty according to the law Um, so it wasn't a case of i don't think that he was there and then us convincing them that no he was there I, i guess that's a little bit of a ramble but i so i don't know what the solution to the problem is i think allen charges are i think allen charges should be outlawed which an allen charge is when the jury deliberates for a period of time until they decide that they are going to be hung, that they cannot come to a verdict. You know, in Ed Eight's case, twice they wrote a note to the judge that says we are whatever, we're seven to five, we are hopelessly deadlocked, we cannot come up with a jur- with a verdict. And then the judge writes them a letter back that says, nope, keep going. And that's based on a Supreme Court case, um, the Allen charge. Keep going, you're not done deliberating until you give me a verdict. They go for another day or day and a half or whatever it was, and they come back and say, we are still hopelessly deadlocked. And then that was when we had the, the juror that we interviewed on the show where you know, they, had, they had said they were hopelessly deadlocked for the second time on a Thursday night. And the judge says, nope, come back tomorrow. You're going to keep deliberating because it, it was already his second trial. And the next morning by 10 a.m., they convicted. And when I asked her what changed, and she just said, I don't nothing. She's I just, I went home, I prayed about it. I just didn't know. And everybody was getting mad because they wanted to go home and they were going to be stuck there over there. They, the judge had told them they were going to have to deliberate over the weekend. You know, it was her and one other person that was a holdout. And wasn't that a holiday weekend? I don't remember. No, it was in August there. We did have a case though. That was that it was in a holiday weekend. Something that we've covered was similar to that. But so she just, she went back in the next morning and just decided to go along with everybody else. And that's why I said, if you were not guilty Thursday night, what changed to make you vote guilty on Friday morning? And it was nothing. And that's a huge flaw. The Allen charge is a big problem. Um, and the personalities. And I want to make clear, too, that I wouldn't, wasn't necessarily you know, trying to, to pick on or throw shade at this particular jury or even the jury foreman. I was talking about, you know, that's what ha- I believe happened in this case, but it's just kind of procedurally, it happens all the time. When you have a, a variety of personalities in a room and they disagree, 
somebody's going to win win the argument. Somebody is going to convince them. And, and the fact that it, if you believe Sandy's guilty, then then the the jury foreman did a great job. If you believe she's innocent, he did a terrible job. But the the facts are the facts. When you have you know, forget the three undecided people. When you have four jurors, you have five that vote guilty, four that vote not guilty. They heard the evidence and came back not guilty. Not undecided like the two people in my case or undecided like the three people in that case. Not guilty based on the evidence they heard at trial, which is all they're allowed to consider. And then, you know, six hours go by of arguing and, okay, well, now they're guilty. You know, who knows what that is? But what I know is that they were convinced by the other members of the jury in the discussions led by the jury form, and they weren't convinced by the prosecution's argument at trial. And I just, as I said in the episode, it's not a legal argument, but it's just, it, it's something that just drives me crazy. It's, it's, it's not a fair, our, our justice system works on paper, but in, in reality, it doesn't work. And I, and I can go on for days about that. I think the uh, presumption of innocence, which is what our entire criminal justice system is based on, is truly non-existent. I have been called for juror duty way more times than a lot of than I than anybody else that I know, and I've sat through the voir dire process over and over and over again. I've watched person after person that when they say, "Do you understand this person is innocent until they are proven guilty, and it is not their job to defend themselves," or they'll ask, you know, the, during voir dire, the uh, the defense attorneys might ask, "Do you understand that it's not my client's job to prove their innocence, and they may not take the stand in their defense?" Can you not hold that against them and understand that's not their burden? And I watch, I mean, people being honest, saying, I don't know, I think if you're innocent, you defend yourself. And then I've, I've heard it in deliberations. They don't take the stand. Why wouldn't they defend themselves? It's just the, the presumptions that are on paper are non-existent in our, our criminal justice system. If I had a solution, uh, personally, I think that something along the lines of professional jurors or better jury education prior to the trial. And then, and then, of course, you have the the process of the voir dire where they're selecting the jury. That's, I mean, you're literally handpicking. So, so the whole idea is right. So, think about how silly this is. The whole idea behind a jury is it's a random jury of twelve of your peers, and, and so that it should be neutral people that when they hear this evidence, that they're going to either convict or not convict. Who you know, the prosecutor thinks that they're going to convict, the defense attorneys think they're not, but. They're going to, it's going to be a fair setup and they're going to hear it and they're going to make their decision. But then before that ever starts, they spend days in a big trial like this, handpicking who they want. You know, they, you know, I don't want that person there because they're black. I don't want that person there because they're a mom. I don't want, you know, of course, if they do it based on race, that's illegal, but they always find an excuse for some other reason they did it. It's just, it's a messed up system. The only thing that I think that could work is educate, you know, where it's not just, they're going to show you a five minute video before you take a trial, but there's like. If you get selected for a jury, you have to sit through like a whole day class explaining it, you know, or professional jurors. But then you have the same problem where, you know, they get in with the judges and the prosecutors and they become kind of part of the system. Yeah, they're part of the system. And so I don't know. Good question, John. That's obviously I think most people that were listening to what we talked about this week and realize that in this case and people can argue innocence or guilt, but I still maintain 100 percent that. Even when, remember, we let the prosecutor come on this show and explain to you all of the most powerful points of her case. And after hearing it, what you heard, there was not one single piece of evidence that indicated that Sandy Melgar actually did this. I said it many times, at best, she presented evidence that Sandy Melgar could have done it with no evidence that she actually did it. And that's based on her own 
explanation of her case against Sandy. And the fact that the jury couldn't find reasonable doubt in that is it's ridiculous. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Forty-five seconds of silence. Maybe some headphones. Thanks for your donations, everybody. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. W-2s. A little tax refund. Yeah, it's going on the car. <laughs> Pay off the, the Hummer. Mike drives a Hummer. You know that? Do you want a license plate number and a social security number? That'd be S- terrible. Send me an email. It's a 15-year-old car. <laughs> <laughs> it's not 15. It's, it's, it's 15. It's 12. She's 12. <laughs> yeah. She's 12. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> terrible junkie car. Here we go. Again, here we go. Take her away, Mike. <laughs> Take her away. You've been saying false conviction. I, know, I said it four times. Jeez. Wrongful conviction. Wrongful. False confession. False confession, right. And f*** off. Okay. Right. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. You wrote some notes here when you were messing with uh, Audio Boom a little bit ago. Right. Um, you wrote Bass Boost. Uh-huh. I'm with you on that. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you had a low roll-off speech. Uh-huh. I'm with you on that. And then you wrote treble boost. I'm with you there. <laughs> and then you made a little smiley face. I like the way that sounded. Okay, that's what the smiley face is. <laughs> I like the way it sounded. Yeah. Okay.
That's funny. And then, then I was right after I wrote that, I was like, check this out, Bob. And you were like, nah, I don't like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I kind of like me to just sound like me. I don't. I should have been like, here's you what should I change it to a frowny like, face. Like, <laughs> except the. Did you, never, <laughs> did you turn it into a penis? No, I X'd out the eyeballs on the smiley face. Forget it. <laughs> A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.